The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 108, a song, a psalm of David. O oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise, even with my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. Then I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I will triumph. Who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Okay, we're in Numbers 13. Again, this is our second and final sermon from Numbers 13. This is from verses 26 through 33, just a few verses today. And it's entitled, A Taste of the Land of Promise, Part 2. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, We were in the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell there in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. The day that I typed this sermon, the enemies of Israel down in Gaza sent missile after missile after missile into Israel. The notifications on my iPad went on continuously for hours. Sergio was so annoyed by them while trying to do his work that he turned off his notifications so that he could think clearly. I left mine on despite how annoying they were because I wanted to be able to empathize with Israel when they faced these cowardly attacks by their enemies. By the time I got to typing this introduction, which I do last on sermons, 
Over 200 had been fired. By the end of the day, it was about 400 and some that had been fired. The text in today's verses speaks of the land devouring its inhabitants. Nothing has changed since that was written, and it will continue to be that way until Israel calls out to Christ. In fact, until then, it's only going to get much, much worse. But this has been a constant repeating pattern for Israel. Since their exodus from Egypt, they have been consistent in rejecting the Lord and his work. Today, we will see the spies begin the process of doing exactly that. Later, they will do it in Canaan time and again. It is rare in the Bible that when one turns a few pages, someone, some tribe, or the whole nation doesn't turn away from him. We can look at this pattern, shake our head, and wonder how stupid they could be. And yes, it is true that with the constant presence of the pillar above the tabernacle, the people had to be considerable dolts in order to reject him and his word. But that pillar wasn't always there. However, when the pillar was gone, the word remained, and the call of the prophets rang out, warning them of their wayward ways. Eventually, exile came, but the disciplinary effects of that soon waned away. Another temple was built, and Israel failed to be the holy nation that they were called to be. And then, then Christ came. Our text verse for today comes from 1 John chapter 1, it's verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Everything about Jesus and his ministry was already explained to Israel. All they had to do was to simply believe in him. But once again, they didn't. We'll see that pictured in today's verses. Now, obviously, the spies who went into Canaan didn't realize that the things that they did and the places that they went to were pointing to Christ and his work. But for those who spoke Hebrew knew what the passage said and saw the work of Christ, you might think that they would have figured this out. And those spies, as I've already said, they had the presence of the Lord right there with them. In the end, they are simply without excuse. But Peter tells us that those who hear the word and reject it are actually more guilty than even they were. Like Israel Vold, Peter says that he saw the Lord on the sacred mountain. And despite that, he says that we have the more sure prophetic word. In other words, what is written about Christ and the fulfillment of those things in Christ is so certain that it is more sure than actually having seen him. Our eyes can deceive us. Our mind can conjure up false ideas about what we have seen, but something prophesied and then fulfilled cannot be more sure. And so, as we see what happened today with Israel, let us remember that what they saw actually does not compare to what we have in Scripture. Numbers 13 is a prophetic look into the work of Christ. After it is explained to you, will you say, well, that doesn't mean what Charlie said. Okay, I'll grant you that one, one time, but not the thousands of times that Christ is revealed again and again and again in picture, in type, in symbolism, and in prophecy. God is trying to wake us up to what is revealed in Christ. What is recorded in the new explains what we see about him in the old 
It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is a bad report. It's verses 26 through 33. Verse 26. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel. The words, now they departed, refer to the completion of their trek into Canaan. Once the land and its inhabitants had been sized up and evaluated, they departed Canaan for the camp of Israel. Upon arrival, it appears that the very first thing that they did, even before going to their own tents, was to proceed directly to the east end of the sanctuary where the tents of Moses and Aaron were situated. This would explain the words, and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation. This spot is the last spot before actually entering the sanctuary, and it is representative of all of the congregation. It is amazing to consider that what lies ahead in these verses will occur directly in front of the sanctuary, above which was the pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night. In other words, the presence of the Lord is made perfectly manifest by the presence of the pillar. It makes the events ahead all the more egregious. The camp has, until their return, remained in the same location as when they left, which is, verse 26 continues, in the wilderness of Paran. This is where they are said to have arrived after departing from Sinai. They left Sinai, had a few interim stops, and this is the next main encampment, presumably the last, before entering into Canaan. It is the same location as was mentioned in verse 13.3 when the spies set out 40 days earlier. Paran means, as we saw last week, glorious. However, the location is also, for the very first time in the narrative, given another name. Verse 26 continues, at Kadesh. The name Kadesh signifies sacred or holy. It is the same location later called Kadesh Barnea. That name would fit with what will transpire among Israel due to the punishment which is coming upon them. Kadesh Barnea would mean sacred desert of wandering, or maybe in the active sense, holy purifying wanderings. Verse 26 continues, they brought back word to them and to all the congregation. In arriving at the tents of Moses and Aaron, there would have been an immediate stir of the people. The leaders would probably have run to this spot to see what the report was in order to then pass it on to the other people. After being in the same spot for more than a month, the anticipation would be very high and the change from daily routine would certainly be welcomed. Along with bringing word of the land, it then says, verse 26 continues, and showed them the fruit of the land. This would have been a marvelous joy for those who had been in the wilderness now for over a year. Though there may have been desert cactus and a few other types of fruit in the wilderness, the quantities would have been extremely limited and not nearly as delightful to the senses as the products of cultivated fruits from a well-watered land. One would think that at the mere sight of this, just seeing the fruit, the matter would have been settled. What was anticipated was right there within reach and ready to be grasped. Woohoo! Let's go in and get that from Canaan. And even more, verse 27, then they told him. The Hebrew word for told here is safar. It means to recount. This is the only time that it's used in the book of Numbers. It's not an unusual word in and of itself, but it relays more than just said or spoke or as they translated it here, told. They went to the land, searched it out, and now they are recounting the details of the journey as if a step-by-step record of what transpired. In recounting, the spies are carefully and methodically explaining themselves to Moses, Aaron, and anyone else who has come to hear their words. 
They cataloged what occurred, and now that minute detail is repeated. In essence, this is what we saw. These are the roads that we took. These are the cities we searched out. This is what the food was like, and so on. And why is this important? It is because what they saw and what they carefully chronicled is what was promised from the mouth of the Lord exactly as he said. Verse 27 continues and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. The description of the land as promised by the Lord has not failed. The term land of milk and honey was introduced in Exodus 3 verse 8. It was stated four times in Exodus and once in Leviticus, all speaking of the promised land of Canaan. Now, what the Lord had said is confirmed by the spies. The term is used a total of 20 times, always but once in relation to the land of Canaan. A land flowing with milk and honey implies richness and fertility. Milk comes from cows, and so it means that the spies saw abundant pasture lands. Honey comes from bees, which pollinate flowers, and so it implies all sorts of fruit trees, herbs, and flowers. And more, for Israel, the term a land flowing with milk and honey should then possess a spiritual connotation. For them, it doesn't just speak of the physical abundance, but also of the spiritual abundance because of the Lord and because they are the Lord's people through whom the word of God comes. The word of God is said to be sweeter than honey. It is also equated with milk, which nourishes. Thus, this is a reference to that as well. The land literally flowed with milk and honey for sustaining Israel's physical lives. It should then logically also flow with milk and honey for sustaining their spiritual lives once they arrived. It is a certainty that if the promise of the Lord's word concerning the abundance of the land is true, so should the abundance of his blessing upon them also be true. In hopefulness that this is so, the spies confirm the news about the land with the words, verse 27 continues, and this is its fruit. The cluster of grapes, the pomegranates, and figs were a token of guarantee that the word of the Lord concerning Canaan was, in fact, true. They had laid them out. They could be held. They could be smelled. They could be tasted. And yet, the physical reality set before them was not enough for the spies to make the connection between the physical assurances of plenty and the spiritual assurances that what God had said would actually come true. They considered the abundance their eyes had seen. They looked around at the camps which surrounded them and the people of whom they were comprised, but they failed to simply look up and behold the pillar above the sanctuary. In their failure, they next contrast the land and its abundance with the inhabitants who dwelt in that land. Verse 28, nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. Ephes key, only indeed. It is a new word in scripture, Ephes. It signifies a ceasing. In other words, we have given you the good news, but here comes the bad. They've been giving good news, and the good news ceases. By giving them the good news, showing them the fruit, telling them what the word of the Lord concerning the land was true, then they would be more readily believed in what they would now pass on. They have confirmed the words of the Lord concerning the land, but they then dispute the word of the Lord concerning the people of the land. In them, a complete disconnect is made between his word of knowledge and his word of capability. They imply that the Lord knows the good, but he cannot deliver that same good. One can almost hear the debate as they left Canaan and trudged back to the camp. I ain't going back up there in battle. Oh, come on, we can do it. No way. Didn't you see the people, the cities, the fortifications? 
They would have gone back and forth, and the weaker of the group would naturally follow the strongest of the weak. If he thinks the people in the land are too strong, I'm with him. The opposing view would be drowned out by the insecurities of the majority. This, then, is the position agreed upon by the majority, and this is what is now reported. The people are described as Oz, mighty, fierce, and powerful. The last time the word was used was concerning the strong east wind which divided the waters of the Red Sea for Israel to pass through. It's not coincidence that this was its last use. In the eyes of the spies, the Oz of the Lord is being challenged by the Oz of the inhabitants. In their eyes, the Canaanites have already prevailed, and the words of the spies must be considered in relation to who they are, as was stated in verse 13 too. There the Lord told Moses to take men from each tribe, everyone a leader among them. The best of Israel now stands before Moses and whines like a bunch of little crying babies about the daunting challenge of facing the enemies in Canaan. Verse 28 continues, the cities are fortified and very large. The land is good, sure, but the people are fierce. And more, they are fierce in defended cities which are massive in size. If the cities are large, the number of people in them is also large. The case is built one superlative upon the other. The marvel of causing an entire sea to divide for Israel, which then swallowed up the great army of Pharaoh, is a long-distant memory. They forgot the great deeds of the Lord, and they cower in their minds over something not nearly as impossible to overcome. Verse 28 continues, Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Like verse 22, it says, The Anak. It is a clan of people known for their unusual necks or the adornments of their necks. In stating the name, it shows that their reputation went ahead of them. There was no need for further explanation. The name itself drew fear from those who heard it spoken. In this, their reputation is elevated to a position greater than even that of the giant fortified cities already described. As they were seen to be associated with the Egyptians in the previous sermon, then they present a fearful challenge to Israel. They had left Egypt and the Egyptians behind, but these people are a force allied with Egypt through their ancestry, and they will be eager to destroy the people who had destroyed their families at the Red Sea. But the spies have more bad news to reveal than this. Verse 29, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. It is the same group of people whom Israel fought in Exodus chapter 17. The battle was fierce, and the lines changed according to the raising of the rod of Moses, if you remember that. As his strength failed, the Amalekites would begin to prevail. However, it is this same group, not just a war party, but the entire clan who dwelt in the south, right where Israel would have to enter. The battle of the previous year would be fresh on Amalek's mind, and he would be in a defensive, fortified position. If the battle lines changed in a war away from their territory, oh my! It would be an utter slaughter in a land they defended. And yet, there is more. Verse 29 continues, The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. Hittite comes from a word meaning terror. Jebusite comes from a word meaning to tread down or trample. Amorite comes from the word amar or to speak. The connection may be that they were noted people and thus renowned. The names themselves give a sense of foreboding. If their names fit the character and they dwelt in the mountains, meaning the southeast part of the land, one could not enter that way without encountering them. 
and in encountering them, there would be great difficulty in overcoming them because of the advantage of their holding the high ground. As bad as this is, hold on to your hats. There's more. Verse 29 continues, And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. The term Canaanite here is a general term. The sea referred to is debated. Some say it's the Dead Sea or even the Sea of Galilee. But that does not seem to be the intent. It is referring to the Mediterranean on the west, which is then contrasted to the Jordan, which is on the east. In other words, descendants of Canaan filled both sides of the land. And this is actually confirmed by Joshua in Joshua 11, verse 3, which says that the Canaanites dwelt in both the east and in the west. Thus, the entrance would be guarded on both sides by a united people, as they were all clans of their father Canaan. If one attempted to attack on the west, those on the east would come to their aid. And if they attacked on the east, those of the west would do the same. This is the intent of the words being conveyed. It is a hopeless situation for a people such as Israel. They would be swallowed up by foes no matter where they entered and no matter where they went. That is at least the majority position. It is one lacking faith in the Lord, and it is one of peevish cowardice. However, not all the spies were peevish cowards. Verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. Here is a new word, has or hush. It is an onomatopoetic interjection, which will be seen just eight times. Caleb, or Dog, who being a Kenizzite is probably not even a native Israelite, is brave enough to stand against the ten faithless spies right in front of Moses. If he were alive today, he probably would have said, why don't you all just shut up? <laughs> what has happened is that the spies have given their report, and Moses has, in fact, responded. Though not recorded here, it is seen in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Once again, we have to go to Deuteronomy to fill in the blanks here. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 1, 29 through 33. Then I said to you, do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before our eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet for all that, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents, to show you the way you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. After this, the people rejected what Moses said. And so Caleb has come out in defense of Moses' words and in opposition to the words spoken against Moses. Once they were quieted, verse 30 continues, and said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. His words carry two repetitions in the Hebrew. First, he says, alo na'ale, or arising, let us arise. It is an adamant statement that they should get up off their duffs and go forward in order to take possession of the land. He then next says, yakol nukal, or overcoming, we will overcome. Again, there is not the slightest hint of indecision in him. He firmly states that the land is theirs and all they have to do is act in order for that to come about. By saying take possession of the land rather than conquer the land, he is showing absolute confidence in the fact that the land is theirs already. It is a certain confidence in what the Lord has spoken. Although it will be many years later, this confidence of Caleb will be seen realized in him when he enters into Canaan with Joshua and together they engage in and win battle after battle against their enemies. 
In fact, Caleb is given the credit for taking out those of Anak already described in verse 22 of this chapter. Here's what it says in Joshua 15. Now to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a share among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the children of Anak. Then he went up from there to the inhabitants of Deber. Formerly, the name of Deber was Kiriath Sefer. In the next chapter, it will be seen that Joshua sided with this minority view. However, Joshua, being Moses' personal assistant, probably deferred to Caleb in the initial response. Caleb would appear as an impartial witness to the congregation. If Joshua spoke first, they could ignore his words as simply a mirror of what Moses would expect him to say. Together, Joshua and Caleb will bear anguish at the attitude of the people, but their imploring words will be wasted on the cowardly spies of Israel. They feared for their lives more than they trusted the Lord, and their weakness became an impenetrable wall against the words of Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. Verse 31, But the men who had gone up with them said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. They completely reject Caleb's support of Moses, speaking directly to him as if he had been sleeping during the entire expedition. In this, they specifically say, Ki chazak hu mimenu, for mighty they than we. In a sense, this is an obviously true statement. If, if it was merely referring to Israel as a people, their numbers were smaller, they were unskilled in battle, and they would be going into a defended land. However, the statement is absolutely false because they are Israel, the people. And as such, they belong to and were led by the one who is all powerful. The statement of these cowardly men in this verse is a total rejection of the Lord in their lives, both his presence and his ability to keep his promises. In today's lingo, we would say of them, epic fail. And in their failure, they decided to share the misery beyond the tent of Moses, verse 32, and they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the only other time a diva or bad report has been noted in scripture is when Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers back to his father. Now it is used of the spies having given out a bad report of the land. What makes their words here worse is that they have already acknowledged to Moses that it is a land of milk and honey, confirming the Lord's word. However, they cannot relay this to the people without having them divided, just as the spies were divided. And so instead of telling them of its positives, they now give a bad report of the land, implying the Lord's word was untruthful. Verse 32 continues. Before we go on, are you seeing yourself in this? The Lord says that he has redeemed you, and you question if you're redeemed. The Lord says that he has saved you, and you question if you're saved. The Lord says that he will lead you to a restored paradise. It is a guarantee. He came out of the grave. And at times we wonder, I'm scared to die because, like I said, I lost a friend last night. And the family is mourning over that. But they have no doubt that he will be with them in glory because they're all a saved bunch of believers. Left the Catholic church and they all attend a nice church up there. You know, it's marvelous to see. But you should be seeing yourself in these verses. You should be questioning, am I one of these spies? Because we all have moments of failure. We all have moments of doubt. We all have moments where we say, I'm not sure. The more you stay in the word, the more you will be like Caleb and you will stand on what the Lord said. He could lift his eyes to the pillar. Well, we can lift our eyes to the word and we can say prophecy fulfilled, 
Prophecy fulfilled. Israel not deserving it back in the land in 1948. Prophecy fulfilled. I will stand on the word of the Lord. This is what you should be saying to yourself as you're seeing these verses. Verse 32 continues. The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. This is a statement which is to be taken metaphorically. However, in doing so, they implicitly state how good the land actually is. In saying that the land devours its inhabitants, it implies that the land is so good that the inhabitants are willing to destroy one another over its possession. Ironically, this is a phrase used in Leviticus 26 concerning what would happen to Israel when they were disobedient to the Lord. The focus for them here is not on the beauty and fruitfulness of the land, but on what that beauty and fruitfulness leads to. This is exactly, folks, exactly what is happening in that same land today. Since Israel returned, the land has blossomed and the surrounding peoples intend to devour its inhabitants over that which they have not produced and to which they have no right. Verse 32 continues, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. This is not just an exaggeration. This is an outright lie. First, the term in Hebrew is anshe midot, men of measures. It is a way of saying that they are twice as tall as normal men. And even if it's true that there were men of great size living in the land, they are implying that this is the state of all of them. Such is not the case. The people were just like any others, but with certain exceptions. However, in their cowardice, they magnified the lie in order to stop the heart of even the most trusting soul in regards to the work of the Lord. Verse 33, there we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants. The words of this clause actually say in the Hebrew, and there we saw the Nephilim, sons of Anak from the Nephilim. The word giants is assumed from the next clause. The word Nephilim most likely comes from the word Nafal, meaning to fall. Thus, they are known as the fallen ones. However, what that means is debated. It could merely be fallen in the sense of prostrating oneself in prayer. And thus, they are the people that pray all the time. The reason for the spies using this term, though, is obvious. Moses had received the book of Genesis, and it, along with any verbal traditions, would have been known to the people. By stating that these were Nephilim, guess what? They were claiming that their origins predated the flood of Noah, and thus they must be supernatural beings. This is because the flood narrative clearly, very clearly said that the Lord would destroy all flesh in which was the breath of life, with the exception of eight people. Either the word of the Lord is true or it's not. And if it's true, then these are supernatural beings. And if it's not, we don't have a sure word. They can't win either way against this logic. If such a race of people existed in Canaan, they would be impossible to defeat. But the Bible doesn't make this claim. Only the spies do. It is they who are speaking to the people, and their words are a gross exaggeration of the situation. There were large people there, just as there are a large number of people in any given society at any given time. This morning, I saw on Mail Online a Pakistani, eight feet tall, what? and he can't find a bride because the women don't want to marry him. I saw that this morning. This happens all over the world, and yes, there are families of great tall people, but they were the exception not the standard. Verse 33 finishes, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. The words here are absolute hyperbole. 
In an attempt to terrify the people and to keep them from any desire of aligning with Moses, these cowardly men have gone to great lengths in order to steer the people away from the otherwise sure and reliable word of the Lord. Jim talked about that before we started today. You don't need to be baptized. It's a work. Well, guess what? It comes after salvation, not before. It has nothing to do with work. You're saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. Nobody said that you need to be baptized. The Lord commanded it, though. And so in obedience to the Lord, you get baptized. That's why we do that. But people will bring into doubt the word of God in every way that you can possibly imagine for whatever perverse reason they have. A land of milk and honey lies ahead of you. Just a short trip and it shall be yours to possess. I shall go before you. The way is paved. It is true. Enter the land and there you I shall certainly bless. We cannot go up against those people. No way, Jose. They are stronger than we. We will be wiped out for sure. We aren't going up, not now or on any other day. We will return to Egypt where we can be secure. Oh, Israel, when will you accept me at my word? When will you pay heed to what I have already for you done? In believing in my past faithfulness, you can know that I am the Lord. And in that, you can then finally believe in Jesus, my son. Believe my word, that which is written to you. And there you will find Jesus, my son. My word to you is true. Our second thought today, the symbolism of the journey. Pictures of Christ. Now think of all the names that we looked at last week. Some of them are only mentioned one time in the Bible. Today we have a new name that was never mentioned before, Kadesh. Why does the Lord do this? Every single thing in this word points to Jesus Christ. The passage found in Numbers 13 follows immediately after the account of Aaron and Miriam's rebellion against Moses and which resulted in Miriam's leprosy. As we saw, that was a picture of the unclean state of Israel in her time of punishment and exclusion from the camp of the Lord. This story follows after that, and it reveals the work of the Lord which brought that about. In other words, it explains Israel's failure to enter the kingdom. Spies were selected in order to search out Canaan, emblematic of the kingdom of God. Before someone flips out, this is not speaking of the literal kingdom which is ahead for Israel after the tribulation period. It is what Paul refers to dozens of times in his epistles as the kingdom of God for believers. It is our inheritance because of Christ. However, this came about is explained in the journeys listed right here in this chapter. They left the wilderness of Zin, which I explained to you means thorn. That would be just like Sinai, a picture of Christ's cross, the thorn. From there, 40 days of travel provide almost no details at all, only a mere handful of verses. It says that they left the wilderness of Zin just as Christ left the cross. It then says that they went as far as Rehov, or wide space. That pictures Christ passing through the veil of death and into heaven, pictured by Rehov, or wide space, there to present his blood, as is described in Hebrews. Thus we have the narrow path, which is Christ, who is the veil, leading to heaven, the wide place. Rehov is said to be near the entrance of Hamath. Hamath means citadel. It would be reflective of the dwelling of God, his place of authority and rule. From there, they went through the south and to Hebron. First, the south signifies intelligence, which comes about by means of knowledge. It is the place of light leading to truth. This is why the menorah was placed on the south side of the holy place. In this, they came to Hebron. Hebron signifies a conjunction or a joining. 
that is the joining of Jew and Gentile into one kingdom. As Paul explains in Ephesians chapter 2, here's what he says. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. While in Hebron, the odd introduction of Achiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the sons of Anak, are noted. Those names are given to explain the position of those who are a part of this joining together. Achiman means my brother is a gift. That is the relationship of the believer to Christ. Christ is the gift. Sheshai, or whitish, looks to the purification of the believer because of Christ. Talmai, or plowman, looks to the one who puts his hand to the plow and does not look back. In other words, he is a believer in Christ. Anak requires more explanation. It means neck or necklace, but that comes from the word anak, which means being fitted out with supplies and thus furnished liberally, just as a necklace is made up of many pieces. Thus, being a son of anak signifies the believer is one who is furnished liberally by God for every necessary work to which he is appointed. Paul explains that in the New Testament. As far as why the enigmatic statement about Hebron being built before Zoan is included, I can only speculate on this. But I've got a friend, I've told you about him, he's a Navy SEAL, and he always tries to preempt me in my sermons. He'll send me what he thinks the passage is. And he came to very similar conclusions as this. He said, I heard your analysis, I heard the meaning of these things, here's what I think. And I varied with him quite a bit in several areas, okay? He's thinking one thing, I'm thinking another. But his conclusion here is very close to mine. I can only speculate, but Psalm 78 equates Zoan with the plagues of Egypt. As those plagues actually look forward to the tribulation period in typology, as we saw when we were back in Exodus, it appears that this is a statement saying that the work of Christ in joining Jew and Gentile in the church age precedes the tribulation. It's a big speculation, but if that is why this verse is here, as a parenthetical thought, it is a subtle hint of a pre-tribulation rapture. And boy, do I like that. Another confirmation of what I've been teaching for years. After this, they then proceeded to the valley of Eshkol. As we saw, this isn't a valley in the modern sense. The word is Nahal, and it signifies a wadi where water would flow through during the seasons of rain. That comes from the word Nahal, meaning to take possession or to inherit. Eshkol means cluster, and that in turn comes from the word Eshek, meaning a testicle. This is a picture of Christ's work. Once having been accepted, he took possession of that which proceeds from the spot where man is generated from. In other words, it is a picture of the overriding of original sin in man. Sin transfers from father to child. The semen which is generated in man is what transfers that sin. Christ has, through his work, taken possession of that in all who move from Adam to him. It is the realization of the kingdom for his people through this act. After that, we are told that there in Eshkol, they cut down a branch of one Eshkol, or one cluster of grapes. Christ is the vine, we are the branches. The single cluster is a sample of the fruit of the kingdom of Christ. The Bible reveals grapes as providing a sense of cultural expression. The grapes of the kingdom, though many, are a single cultural expression. 
this pole or mot, as I said last week, is the same word is used for carrying the menorah and the golden altar of incense. That it is carried by two speaks of the Old and the New Testaments being united as one. The beam signifies the work of the Spirit. There is one Spirit working, and thus the cluster of grapes, signifying the fruits of the Spirit in a cultural expression, is transported in this manner. And this isn't making this up. We went through the same analogies with the mot for the carrying of those other two articles. We're being consistent here. Therefore, the one cultural expression is that of those in the kingdom, both Jew and Gentile. They are one in Christ. Along with that were the rimon, or pomegranates, which signify mental maturity and calling to remembrance. They picture exactly this, calling to remembrance the work of the Lord and thus mental maturity in Christ. The figs, or te'enah, signify connection to God because of the work of Christ. I explained that last week. This is the sum of the travels of the spies. At this point, it notes that the journey took 40 days. As we saw last week, the number 40, as defined by Bollinger, is a period of probation, trial, and chastisement, but not of judgment. It is a time of testing to determine an outcome. It is the product of five and eight, and it points to the action of grace, which is five, thus leading to and ending in revival and renewal, the number eight. This is exactly realized in those who accept Christ, receive his grace, and which leads to the regeneration in their spirit. From there, they are said to have returned to the wilderness of Paran, or Glorious, and to a name never mentioned before, Kadesh, or Holy. It is a picture of access into the glorious kingdom of God because of the work of Christ, by which we are made holy. It is a process. If you follow the travels, it is a process which goes from the cross, through the heavenlies at the entrance to the citadel of God, and then that which stems from that work, the joining of Jew and Gentile, the movement of man from Adam to Christ in the new birth, and the adoption as sons, the work of the Spirit, and the restored connection of God because of it. Now, in understanding the symbolism of these words, which in very skimpy detail explain their 40 days in Canaan, we can see the correlation between the events and what lies ahead in the rejection of Israel concerning entering Canaan. Israel had seen all of this in the coming of Jesus Christ, and yet a bad report was made concerning his work. The nation refused to enter and their punishment came upon them for it. This will be seen in the coming chapter. However, Caleb a mere dog by name and a Gentile, at least by genealogy, spoke of what he saw. He received the inheritance and he, along with Joshua, were the only ones who would cross over Jordan and into the land of promise. For Israel as a whole, the generation who rejected the Lord was rejected by the Lord. For them, only a later generation would be brought into the land he promised to their fathers. And that's coming in our lifetime, folks. I mean, literally, we're seeing this come about in our lifetime it is with great gratitude to the Lord and the prayers of several friends that I emailed about the complexity of this chapter that it's been explained to you today. I read this passage again and again over the weeks it was being prepared, and I only half slept as I tried to figure out what the Lord was saying. But there is no doubt in my mind that what has been presented is what the Lord intends for us to see, with the exception of that parenthetical statement which I've speculated on. Once again, God is asking us to consider our relationship to him, and he is doing it in relation to the work of Jesus Christ. A rejection of Jesus is to reject the only way to be restored to God once again. The only way. Sadly, Israel has been in that position as a people for 2,000 years. 
individually. This is not true for all, but as a body, it is their state. For you, God has also given you the same choice. Will you come to Christ and be reconciled to God through him? Choose wisely. God is gracious, and he longs to bestow his grace upon you. May today be the day that you receive it. Now, I had my sister here come up to me during the break, and she said that she was watching the altar. You know, I talked about the altar and the prophecy update a couple weeks ago, the dedication of the altar in Jerusalem, and she said some older rabbi was there, and they were talking about Jesus, and he said, I would rather go to Auschwitz than to receive Jesus. This is what's being pictured right here, folks. She said her heart broke when she heard that. But imagine that. That's the enmity between the Jews and between Christ right now. And it is all being pictured in what happened back then. And we've seen this before in previous Genesis and Exodus sermons, and we're going to see it again all the way through the Bible. God is trying to wake up that group of people and say, I am he. And yet they continue to reject him, and they will suffer because of it. How sad that is. But you don't have to reject Jesus Christ. I'm talking to you here, and I'm talking to anybody that's out online or ever watches this sermon. You can know that these stories are being given to us for a reason. You always follow the roots of the words, and they will always show you what God is trying to to reveal to you. Remember the dietary laws in Leviticus 11. And the root of every single word led to a sin that is being prohibited in the church. It's always telling us something that we need to know, either for doctrine or for edification or for knowledge about Jesus Christ. He is the point of scripture. He said it himself. You search the scriptures and you look for eternal life, but they are what speak of me. The very words we're reading every single time you open this book will reveal Jesus. They will. And so I would ask you today to consider your position in relation to God. Have you called on Jesus? Because if not, you will not participate in what God has done for you in him. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He is the one avenue, the one path, and that is it. And from there, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. I would ask you today to consider this. He sent his son to live your life of sinless perfection, which you don't have, and to give it to you. He's lived that life out for you, and then it says that God made him sin who knew no sin, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. He's offering you a trade. I will take all of your baggage, all of your junk in your life, and I will take it upon myself, and I will give you my righteousness. Please do it today. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what is going to happen five minutes after walking out of this door. And then please, take some tracks and hand them out. They're right over there. I'm running out. I ordered another couple thousand this morning, but... Somebody emailed me and they said, hey, I want some tracks. Actually, didn't. You know what? This guy was very gracious. You know what he did? I might as well say this. He said, send me a couple of tracks and I'll copy them and I will buy a stamp with the superior word, whatever you say on there, and I'll stamp it. And that way it'll save you the, uh, the uh, work. I said, I love the work. I get to sit with my wife at the dinner table and do this while we're watching TV. So I'll send you the tracks. He said, okay, and I'll send them to him today. Or actually, it won't be today, but I've got them here to send to him. Right? Take some tracks. Hand them out. You never know when you're going to affect somebody's life. And it's such a simple thing to do. It doesn't cost you anything. You just hand it out. It might cost you embarrassment. I have to tell somebody about Jesus. There he is, hanging on the cross, bleeding, dying for your sins, but you're afraid to talk about him? Please, tell people about Jesus and learn this word. I am so thankful for the audio Bible that Tom sent me. I got to tell you what, I am so thankful because I got through almost all of the 
epistles of Paul in the past two days. And I don't drive much at all, but I'm in Hebrews. I'm just finishing it up when I pulled up here today. What a marvelous thing to listen to the word of God read to me while I'm driving. I'm so thankful. And last night we had one that I kept aside because I wanted to give it to some friends of mine. And I'll let Tom know this. I I took it up to the Korean restaurant yesterday and they're such good Christian people and they were so thankful for that. Oh, marvelous stuff. So you know what? Get an audio Bible, listen to it. Pick up your Bible in the morning and read it. Pick it up in the evening and read it. And during the day when you got 15 minutes, read it. Learn this word. Cherish what God has given you because he's telling us about his son coming into history and dying for us. I got a closing verse for you here. It's from Deuteronomy 1. It's verses 26 and 27. Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord, your God. And you complained in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out to the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Yeah, he hates you. He opened the Red Sea. He brought you out. He's been feeding you every single day. He gives you a day of rest. He does all of these things for you, and the Lord hates you. How stupid. But this is us. I mean, keep thinking of yourself when you're in a pit and when you're, uh, the whole world is collapsing around you and you think, the Lord must hate me. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Just because you're having a bad day or a bad life doesn't mean that he hates you. It means that he's going to give you something better if you'll just trust him. Next week is Numbers 14, 1 through 10. They will march until their years of punishment are done. It's entitled A Year for Each Day. Part 1. That'll be our 25th number sermon. Thank you, Jay. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there, carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Now, I got a poem for you, but before I do, I got a question for you. Knowing the meaning of the name of Caleb, who in the New Testament helps explain that meaning to us in relation to Christ? Hey, he did it. You get a Maserati, buddy. All right. Here we go. Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Listen to this. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her, Not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs, the Caleb's. Then she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Think of Caleb. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. You wonder why these stories are put in there. They're, yes, to edify us, to teach us of the nature of Christ, but they're also to fulfill something that is revealed or concealed in the Old Testament. And there you go. Good job. What color do you want? What color do you want? Maserati. Zebra zebra color. That's going to cost you. I'm not paying for a zebra paint job. Okay, our poem today is called A Taste of the Land of Promise. 
Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land as well. Then they told him and said, we went to where you sent us in the land. It truly flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. Look and see how grand. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. We had to beware. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites in the mountains dwell. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan as well. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession now, for we are well able to overcome it, and we can whoop up on them, folks, and how. But the men who had gone up with him said quite unfaithfully, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. Bad news we are relaying. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came from the giants. Isn't that right? And we were in our own sight like grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, give us strength in our times of weakness. Help us not to be like faithless Israel who rejected you and turned away from you when you had already showed them your greatness. You've shown us your greatness in a thousand ways in our own lives and in your word fulfilled and in the things that you have promised to us that we can trust because of those other things. Help us to keep our eyes on those things and give us comfort through our affliction. Even if we have it, give us comfort through it. And Lord, I certainly pray right now for all the people we mentioned at the beginning of this service with so many difficulties in this world, trials and, and troubles that are, people are facing. Lord, be with them and help them and strengthen them through those times. And Lord, we love you. We love your word. We love who you are and what you've done for us. Give us the strength and the wisdom and the desire to tell others about this wonderful, precious life, which is found in Christ our Lord. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.